The paradox of volcanoes was that they were symbols of destruction, but also life. Once the lava slows and cools, it solidifies and then breaks down over time to become soil. Rich, fertile soil. Matt Haig Welcome to Episode 5 of Warfare Advancement and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and I'd like to thank everyone that has been listening so far. Uh, last couple of weeks we've done some kind of metatextual episodes, just kind of discussing pop culture. This week we're going to get back into our prehistory and some of the major events in the last glacial period, um, right about the time we were leaving Africa or getting ready to leave Africa. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there were some questions I did want to answer first. Um, I have gotten a couple since um, since our last episodes uh, were recorded ahead of time. You know, we had like four in a row that recorded all around those same time periods. And I figured I'd go ahead and answer them now. Uh, so uh, the first one was actually asked by a couple of people, including people I know in real life. Um, but was there a male equivalent of... Um, mitochondrial eve uh and you know just kind of talk about that so again i'm not a geneticist and that's not my area of study uh but yes there is a male equivalent of mitochondrial eve um this is known as y chromosomal adam um and he's the most uh, he's the most recent patrilineal common ancestor um, and he is basically the most recent male for whom all living humans are descended um, through their male ancestors um, this can basically only be chat I think through the Y chromosome if I understand it correctly um, I know historically speaking um, that it was it was assumed that this person would have descended from Eve that he would have been much more recent however I think that started to sh shift um, once they discovered what haplogroups were for Y chromosomes um, they adjusted the age um, of you know of that uh, estimate I think right now um, he's considered to be you know much older uh, than Eve, or not much older, but older than Eve in general, from my understanding. Um, the other question was if I had ever seen, and this was related to the, uh, the the episode about Quest for Fire, and this was asking me if I had ever seen the movie Iceman, um, which is a 1984 movie. I have not seen it. I've heard it's an interesting movie, kind of along the lines of um, Altered States, but it's not one I've seen. It's on my list. Um, from my understanding, it's sci-fi, though, so I doubt I'd ever do an episode on it, at least, you know, in a traditional sense. But um, you never know. I, I might decide it's, it's worth inclusion. Um, that being said, I think uh, we should probably go ahead and get into the main episode. Uh, so, as you may have guessed from the introductory quote there's going to be volcano talk this week and i hope you're looking forward to that uh, so let's go ahead and get on into it now when we left off last time uh, we 
it was about 80,000 years ago, and we were about 30,000 years into the last glacial period, and that means we have around 70,000 years remaining in that period of time. Um, we're going to continue from there as we go over some of the more important cultural and material uh, developments we made, as well as how we deal with some uh, external challenges, we'll call them. <laughs> now, culturally speaking, in the archaeological record, we begin to see more evidence of burials that have more features to them than just saying, you know, ripping up a hole and dropping a body in. Um, when I gave an example of burial in the last main episode, I may have jumped the gun a little bit by giving those early examples of burial more meaning than say just disposing of you know rotted remains and preventing you know basically preventing the attractions of scavengers or predators there is nothing in those burials that i'm aware of to convey any type of a ritual or ceremonial component i do think that there was personally but that's my opinion so there's no evidence in those burials of any kind of ceremony or ritual. However, starting around 78,000 years ago, burials such as you'd see at the Panga Yasaidi Cave in Kenya, which is a burial of a, a, a small child, um, we do begin to see and find additional and you know different funerary practices from the ones that from the burials we found in the Middle East that date to 120,000 years ago. Uh, things uh, that include uh, positioning of the body um, and part of the body being covered in some type of wrapping. Um, in South Africa at the Blombos Cave, uh, we found um, art uh, that, you know, or at least what is probably art. Uh, this is another big cultural development. This is dated around 73,000 years ago. Um, and basically what, what we found there are just like, they're, they're just rough geometric lines and kind of abstract shapes. There's nothing, um, you know, too deep about them, but they are carved on ochre. And now this has been dated to around 73,000 years ago. Um, now, there are older examples of kind of artistic expression, but most of those are questionable. Um, there are things like handprints that could just be natural impressions that got captured and preserved by happenstance. Or, you know, there are rocks that look like they could have possibly been carved or scraped to be like a figure, but then it could just be erosion that makes it look like that's what happened. There's no actual definitive shape there uh, but it's important to remember that these peoples that did the burial and these people where you're finding the first art in southern africa at the blombos cave are just you know separated by you know two two to five thousand years so that's a very big time frame and it's you know blombos in south africa and kenya are not you know they're not close to each other, geographically speaking, either. I mean, that's a long distance. I mean, I know they're both in Africa, but it's it, it's a trip. Um, so not only are these people separated by geography and time, um, 
or I'm sorry, these people are not just as, uh, separated by time, but they're also separated by geography. Uh, so they're descendants of one group and the ancestors of the other, um, you know, or vice versa. They would not be interacting with each other regularly. Any kind of interaction between these two groups would have been completely peripheral, and this was happening, you know, fairly rarely. Now, in between those two time frames, there was a teeny tiny massive supervolcanic eruption on what is today the island of Sumatra. Uh, there is a lake at the site today known as Lake Toba. This is the largest lake in Indonesia and the largest volcanic lake in the world. Uh, this uh, explosion was stronger than the ones that blew you know, the top off of Mount St. Helens in 1980 here in the United States and even the one at Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991, which as far as I know is that's the largest one in the last 100 years in the world. So um, in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, we have the advent of DNA study and there were some indications from, you know, the kind of the samples we had at that time that there was a bottleneck uh, in the human population that happened somewhere between 70,000 and 50,000 years ago. So, the estimates of the time of that volcano's eruption and the impact uh, it would have made on the world, um, you know, they kind of line up. Uh, it was estimated at the time that uh, the, you know, there would be immediately cold temperatures anywhere between 3 to 5 degrees Celsius cooler, or which is about 5.5 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit cooler you know, for, you know, a half decade at least, and that would have had a major impact on the climate for, you know, at least according to the estimates for close to a thousand years. So it, again, it doesn't take much of a leap to connect those two events. It would make sense for them to be related, and this has been a very popular theory. Uh, it is very well cited in a lot of online history sources, um, especially in like history videos um, that were made in the mid to early 20 uh, or the mid to early or mid 2000s to the early 2010s uh, and it's something you'll see even in fairly recent like within the last two three years of online videos um, that this catastrophe at Toba left our population at just around 10,000 fertile individuals however academically speaking in the last eight or so years there has been evidence or lack thereof um, that that show that this is probably not the case. Um, so I have no doubt that the eruption affected you know the climate to an extent, and it affected us to an extent. Um, there is you know there is debris from that eruption from Indonesia to Africa. That's that's a lot. Um, but there are missing things that you would expect from like a volcanic winter. Uh, there's no fossils in those. Or there's not a large number of fossils in those like ash and eruption plumes, you know. Um, so there is actually little evidence that it led to our near extinction. So uh, I think in March of 2018, uh, there was a Journal of Human Evolution um, article. Uh, it was written by, I know the main author was Chad Yost, or at least he was the, the headline author. I think it was, a, it was by a group of four or five individuals, but Chad Yost is the one I know off the top of my head. And basically they were showing that the dirt and other soil samples 
um, from that time show no real dramatic cooling event, at least in Africa, you know, which is where most of us were living at that point in time. Um, and it's important to note that it is possible. Um, I've, I've read some more recent, you know, articles, I think, kind of responding to that, that the tropics actually would not have had as bad of cooling as, say, you know, northern hemisphere, uh, which, of course, most of our population was living in the tropics or the subtropics. <clears throat> so, you know, that could be another explanation why we don't seem to be affected. Um, but anyway, huh, that's, uh, that's just uh, the Toga event is very big, obviously, in a geological sense. It, you know, it was, I think it's still the last, it's the most recent, like, it's most recent um, powerful eruption, like, you know, that I think we're able to track. And it's the one that, we, you know, we were alive in most recently. So it's it, it is a very interesting and compelling subject, and you know with a lot of worries about climate change today, you know it's something like you know kind of disaster porn and like how you know it might affect us you know when the when the climate collapses or whatever you know whatever you want to say about the current climate models um, whatever those are. So, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, we nearly went extinct then. We're probably going to go extinct now. Whatever, whatever your, uh, whatever your take on that kind of study in science is. It's just like a, basically a dry run, for lack of a better term. Um, but again, more recent studies have been a little bit more uh, muted in the amount of change that was affected on the planet and on us. So if you see a video that's within the last five years and they're citing the Toba catastrophe, um, maybe take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Just, you know, just as a little bit of a warning. Now, materially speaking, um, we do begin to see more items um, or newer items or at least finding examples of this newer, these newer items. Because again, my, my mantra is, if it's the oldest one we found, it means it's not the first one we found, it's just the oldest um, surviving example. So at that time, um, around, you know, around the same time uh, we were kind of developing those funerary practices. We've also found uh, at another rock shelter in South Africa, um, I think it's at Sibudu, uh, we found evidence of construction of bedding um, from sedges, which are kind of like a fern, um, and they were topped with aromatic leaves that you know contained insecticide or larvicidal effects. Uh, so, you know, our ancestors are, you know, learning about a very rudimentary kind of pest control. So, you know, earliest pest control in recorded history. And from there, we have also found um, the earliest heat treatment of bladelets. So little very small uh, chipped uh, carved stone heads for what are either at lateral darts or arrows. Um, now we've just found the bladelets. As far as I know, we, there were no like pieces of wood that they were attached to. But obviously, 
just you having an arrowhead and throwing it at something is not going to do anything. So they were obviously constructing these heads to attach to some type of wooden instrument. Um, so we can guess that they probably had some type of adhesive or, um, you know, maybe um, a natural occurring like plant-based like uh, gel or tar that would allow them to attach these arrows or these arrowheads or bladed heads to either darts or arrows. <clears throat> now that's at 71,000 years ago and that's South Africa. Now, uh, I did not go into atlatl darts when I went into, um, when I mentioned them briefly in the Quest for Fire episode, because again, that's supposed to be like 100,000 years ago. Uh, the, this is, uh, you know, 71,000. So what an atlatl is, um, it, well, that's a, that's a term for what is a spear thrower. Essentially, it's a tool that, you know, you use to get leverage to kind of increase your velocity in a dart or javelin. Um, and they can be very simple. They can simply be a long piece of wood that has, you know, kind of been cut in half and kind of pseudo hollowed out. And at the end, you just have like, um, kind of have like a hook or a divot in that wood that you did not cut away. Essentially, you just slide your spear into that and then you just um, rear back with the thrower. So basically like you're throwing a spear, except the spear is not what you're throwing. You're just, you're, you're using the same motion, but you're able to get a lot more force because you have that, um, that leverage, that extra leverage that you're getting from the, the thrower itself. Uh, atlatl is a Nahuatl word, obviously, um, which was spoken in Mexico by the Aztecs, and um, that's how it's kind of come into use in modern times. <clears throat> now, what does this mean for us? Basically, it, allowed, it would have allowed us to throw spears farther. Um, you could have made deadlier tools from smaller pieces of wood, lighter pieces of wood. You would not have to get close to, you know, or as close to your prey as you did in the past. Um, there is some evidence, at least uh, evolutionarily speaking, that once we kind of develop these range tools, we begin to see kind of a decrease in human size. Um, we kind of get closer to what you would see in modern day hunter gatherers in South Africa and in the, the mid-deserts. Um, you know, you're, you are not having to be as active, but you are also able to hunt much easier, so you're not, you don't require as much, um, you don't require as much physical strength. You know, being a super tall, fit, you know, long distance runner, like we discussed in those early episodes, that requires a lot of energy. You need a lot of calories. Well, if you can do that kind of hunting and bring down those type of animals without having to get close, like there's no reason for you to be big, as big and as powerful when you can be a little bit further away and just be faster. So, you know, you, you probably wouldn't need, you know, to kind of keep up that size in terms of your 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 body um not to say that they weren't fit they're just not as tall and their muscles are probably not quite as um 
uh, dense. Uh, their bones probably wouldn't have been as dense either. Um, and then with a spear thrower, you could, I think you can get like, I think they've clocked it just like simple ones. Um, at least, I think it's 80 miles per hour, which is, you know, I think it's like a little under 130 kilometers. I need to do, redo the math on that one. But, um, and you know, today, I think with modern implements, you know, you can go well over that in terms of speed. So, you know, that's, and it's also possible that we weren't using spear throwers at that point in time. Uh, that could have been a later invention, and we could have had the bow and arrow at that point. Um, there, you know, if we had the kind of adhesives we would need to properly, you know, connect stone arrowheads to wood, it's entirely possible we would have had the technology to create a very primitive um, composite bows. And these would not be massive. These would not be like full body long bows. We're talking about very small curved bows, just enough to kind of, you know, maybe give you an extra 20, 30 feet on your, on your range, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it's a hell of a lot better than getting within, you know, strike like stabbing difference with like a five foot spear i mean that's incredible mm. so um but again we're just not sure what those airheads were for you know it may not have been a full uh atlatl or spear thrower it could have been something smaller you know it could just been like a little dart you know that they were made they were small but they were easily easier to make aerodynamic um, and then, you know, then they developed the, that model or spear thrower from there. There's a, there's a wide variety of options for how that kind of, um, happened. Whichever of the two, bow and arrow or spear thrower, they came first. Um, this is going to be a massive boon for us in terms of acquiring food from animals, as well as protecting ourselves from animals and it's going to help us outcompete our hominid cousins that are still around, of course, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. Uh, whether we were trying to actively outcompete them or not, or if that was just the way things worked out, um, you know, ranged weaponry is going to be a massive, massive boon for us in terms of uh, just survival compared to those other uh, hominids and animals. And that's what we're going to get into next time. However, this last little bit of this episode, um, I just want to kind of cover our breakout of Africa, at least in the initial phase. So we rapidly colonized uh, what is uh, kind of, I guess, southern Arabia, um, or at least we traveled through it fairly rapidly. We may have stuck around there, um, depending on, you know, what the weather was like it again it would have it would have changed and i imagine migrations you know they were following you know different um animal herds you know just trying to you know keep up with them um they would have probably mostly crossed in the um the part of um, the horn of africa and arabia where today the red sea is that probably would not have been there there would probably have been if not a small land bridge enough of a kind of a small 
Um, water crossing, you know, something that could be easily be made with some small rafts or something along that lines. Um, you know, just to get from Africa to Asia. Um, and they probably would have encountered any remaining Homo sapien groups in the area. Probably would have subsumed them if they had had the better technology, or at least, um, if not, you know, outcompeted them or killed them, they would have probably, you know, intermingled with him again. Um, there were probably some humans in India, um, even before our, you know, our starting point of this episode, which was around 80,000 years. Um, there would have been very small numbers in India at that time, even after the Toba, uh, explosion, which, you know, probably would have affected India, certainly, if not Africa. Um, you know, they may have kind of the humans leaving Africa at this point, the 71,000 mark, they, you know, they would have either moved in to Asia and India and intermingled with those groups, or it's possible those older groups had left, possibly because of the eruption, to try and kind of get somewhere a little bit more hospitable. Um, whichever the case is, by 61,000 years ago, so within 10,000 years of us developing microblades for those ranged weapons I was talking about, we had occupied uh, Sahul, which is the term that some people use for the super Australia that would be connected to what is today like Papua New Guinea, uh, Tasmania, and some of the Aru Islands. Um, again, water levels lower. Um, they would have also had ended up in Sunda, which is kind of like the super Southeast Asia, which includes all of what is now Sumatra, Borneo, um, Thailand, you know, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam, all that, all those nice little Southeast Asian com uh, countries would have been, um, you know, would have all been connected to one another, and there would have been less, um, you know, a uh, little bit less water travel. There would have been some they probably would have made on a simple log boats, you know, burned out log boats or maybe small rafts or canoes. Um, yeah, so by 61,000 years, we we had reached probably Sahul. Um, and if we hadn't by then, you know, you know, at least in small numbers, I think we were there. Uh, also, I think this is also known as Papua land or um, Magnesia is another term I've heard for it. Uh, Whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, that's, and that's incredible to me that we were, we left Africa and we just, there were groups that just kept moving, just kept following, you know, just following along, finding food, just surviving. Um, and these people probably would have met Denisovans um, the same way, you know, our ancestors that moved into Europe uh, met the Neanderthals. Uh, and that's kind of going to be our focus for the next episode. We're going to go in-depth into the kind of peopling of Europe and Asia and our interactions with those early, um, those other early hominids. Um, and after that, I think uh, that's going to take up most, if not all, of the next episode. And then from there, we're going to kind of wind down to uh, the Neolithic Revolution and our discovery and domestication of plants as well as some animals, including, I believe, we'll get to, I think we'll get to the, 
domestication of dogs next time as well. So I know there are going to be a few people looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, so... Yeah, I thank you guys for listening to this episode. It's, uh, you know, it's a... It's been a, it's been a journey. Um, last couple of weeks have been some kind of lighter episodes. This one's kind of getting back into that more, you know, kind of ethereal history. Um, there's not a whole lot to know for sure. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of guesswork in these. And I, you know, this obviously isn't my favorite part of history. I prefer more solid stuff and getting to our discussion of the developments of different human civilizations and how they were like and how they were different and we're going to get there but I do think it is important to kind of see why everyone was where they were when we started developing you know more identifiable civilizations and peoples and languages so I think this is important even though it's probably not the most exciting thing but I do want to thank everyone that has kept up weekly um Again, I am very surprised at the numbers that I'm seeing. I mean, they're not massive by any stretch, but um, for just a you know a fun little side project for myself, you know, I'm you know I, not even including friends and family I know who have at least listened to one or two episodes. Um, you know, I, I the numbers are still really impressive, even taking all that stuff to account. So, I cannot thank everyone enough, and uh, I hope you continue to listen and enjoy as the show. Uh, continues and evolves along with our ancestors so uh, thank you all i hope you have a wonderful day and uh, i'll see you next time thank you goodbye